Everyone who's found success has an obligation to share and give back. Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's biggest challenges. Today's guest, Pete Stavros, a partner at private equity firm KKR and the founder of Ownership Works, a nonprofit making it easier for companies to share ownership with employees and help those employees build real wealth. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. And this is Meet the Leader. We start from a place of this is the right thing to do. And by the way, it also happens to be smart business. Pete Stavros grew up in Chicago, the son of a road grader. His dad worked construction sites for an hourly wage and belonged in a union. His dad saw his share of strikes. And while Pete didn't know it, the stories his dad told about clashes between bosses and workers would kick off a lifelong interest in labor relations and how better designed incentives can build better companies and even improve people's lives. Those stories inspired him to, years later, study employee-owned stock plans at Harvard Business School and later drove Pete to experiment with broad-based ownership approaches at KKR. Those stories also inspired him to found Ownership Works, a nonprofit that will help drive research and set best practices, all with the aim of transforming how ownership is distributed within corporations. Pete talked to Meet the Leader about the potential for shared ownership to change company cultures and how leaders lead, and even upend a number of systemic societal issues, like the racial wealth gap. The quantitative goal we've set up is 10 billion of wealth creation for lower income colleagues at, at companies who roll this model out. I think it could be many multiples of that. He also talked about the qualities that he uses most in his work and the unsung role patience plays in problem solving. He'll talk about all of that, but first he'll lay the foundation, the definition of shared ownership. The, the concept is Everyone participates in equity ownership in the company from the CEO to an entry-level colleague. And then on top of that foundation of broad-based ownership and shared value, you build a sense of shared mission. So opening up the business plan, sharing financial information, making people feel genuinely included in the operation of the business, sharing key metrics you know, back to the entire workforce on how you're doing, where you're on plan, where you're off plan, and how you're going to get uh, back on course. And it's really to get everyone to understand their role in creating value at the company and to get a clear sense of how they're doing, ideally every day, if not every day, every week against those key objectives. And from an employee's perspective, you know, we also add on, on top of all of this services like financial coaching to make sure people understand the value of the equity that they're being granted and that the proceeds of the equity get put to the highest and best use possible. Why are these elements so key uh, for people to be taking notice of? Probably a few reasons why. One, from a wealth inequality perspective, broad ownership has obviously the potential to impact that. If you look at Federal Reserve data on wealth, ownership of corporate equities is one of the big drivers of wealth inequality today. So 10% of Americans own, the top 10% own 25 trillion of corporate equities, the bottom half own about 250 billion. And that delta has exploded since the 1980s. And so that that would be one, moving from a model where the top half of 1% of an individual company typically has the majority of the, you know, the upside, which is, which is typical inside of a company, to one where the upside is shared across an organization that's got potential implications for wealth inequality. 
on a related note, there is an opportunity with respect to the racial wealth gap. So there's a racial equity opportunity here as well. You know, we need to put ownership on the agenda in terms of black wealth building, Hispanic wealth building. Colleagues who are, are black and Hispanic are underrepresented, sadly, at the tops of organizations. And that is typically where, where the vast majority of the ownership resides, as I, as I mentioned. So we've kind of got the the double whammy of overrepresentation of white males at the top of an organization, that's where all of the wealth building happens. Then all the financial resiliency and financial literacy training and coaching work we do as a part of this program, I think is desperately needed in, in the country. And then finally, I'd say from a company perspective, this has the potential to really be a source of culture building and reduce worker turnover and enhance employee engagement. And so given all of those uh, very important points that you just made, can you tell us a little bit about Ownership Works? What is it? How does it operate? So it's a, a nonprofit. It helps companies implement and execute broad-based uh, ownership programs. So on the implementation side, it helps companies structure broad-based equity grants, size those individual grants, think through vesting, retention requirements, legal tax, accounting uh, questions and concerns, how you administer a very broad plans. Um, when those plans span geographic boundaries, they can get complicated to, to structure and implement. And then it's also around driving employee engagement, building a more resilient workforce, et cetera. So it's that collective suite of services that the nonprofit offers to companies. It's important to note that the nonprofit is being founded by a number of private equity firms uh, and likely some public companies together who have real interest in this movement. So it's not you know, a couple of us, this is a real, a real broad, broad effort that we're trying to launch here, which will be supported by some blue chip foundations, some major financial institutions, as I mentioned, a number of private equity firms, consulting firms, law firms, a, a bunch of people who are in the deal environment are coming together to help make this happen. You have a long-held interest in the power of employee ownership that was kicked off by your dad who worked as a road grader. Can you talk a little bit about that? As you mentioned, my dad operated a road grader for 45 years, construction company in Chicago, earned an hourly wage. And, you know, what I saw growing up was a lot of conflict between workers and management, in part driven by the hourly wage itself. If you think about it, it's a really crazy way to incentivize and pay people. The, the employee wants more hours and the employer wants fewer hours. And there's really no incentive alignment. There's no incentive for the employee to care about productivity, cost, quality, on-time delivery, customer satisfaction. So my dad went through a number of years where there was that constant tension. You know, he, he used to get paid in the early days to drive to the job site that, that let's say it was an hour drive to the job site. You get paid for that. You get paid for the drive home. You get paid for your lunch hour. And over time, those all got whittled away. I often tell this story. There's one day where my dad and his colleagues after the lunch hour, paid lunch hour had been taken away, they intentionally had all of the road aggregate and materials delivered right at the lunch hour so they could intentionally refuse delivery mm -hmm. and run the job out of material. And my dad came home and said, can you believe this is what we're doing? There's no incentive. There's no alignment. It's the opposite. We're trying to sabotage one another. <laughs> so my dad always wanted profit sharing in his union, never got it done. But that was, I'd say, where you know, the original kind of inspiration for me anyway, uh, came from for this was watching him work for decades with really no, no alignment. And uh, you also wrote your thesis at Harvard about employee owned stock plans. Uh, can you uh, tell me a little bit about that? So right before I went to business school, 
I was at an investment firm. I happened to work on an ESOP, uh, which is a it's, it's a often misused acronym. It is a very technical tax structure from the 1974 ERISA Act uh, that allows companies to not pay federal income taxes if 100% of the common ownership is owned by employees. Uh, these are not as common as they once were, certainly in private equity. They're not really common at all anymore. And even conversions into ESOPs at big scale you know, don't happen as, as commonly anymore. But at the time, I was fascinated by, by ESOPs. I still think they're great. I'm in favor of anything that puts ownership in the hands of a larger number of employees. But what I wanted to study was, you know, what was the original idea? How did they get popular? Why has private equity experimented with it and then turned away from it? Could it be relevant once again? Are there other non, you know, ESOP ways of of sharing ownership broadly? So that was um, a great opportunity. You know, business school is a time to think and a time to follow your passions. And so that was what I had the chance to do, particularly my second year was, was to really study that. And that's the paper that I wrote when I was there that you're referring to. And what did you take away from that? I'm a proponent of ESOP, so don't get me wrong, but I learned some of the challenges with respect to private equity and maybe larger scale ESOPs, why people had not been focused on converting to an ESOP structure. So just as an example, in an ESOP, you know, it's overseen by the Department of Labor and there'd been some conflict between companies who had converted into an ESOP structure and the Department of Labor. I think that had scared some folks off. There are redemption requirements put upon the company if you're in an ESOP structure. Uh, there's some requirements around how the board is run with an ESOP trustee. And so there were a number of things that I learned about and really steered me down the path of, hey, these are great. There are some challenges. Are there other ways to also share ownership outside of a, a formal ESOP structure, which is what you know we've started doing and, and what some other private equity firms and public companies are, are focused on today? sort of lifting off of that, why is it maybe uh, sharing ownership broadly more common? Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the the more common objections and sort of, uh, you know, the reasons people sort of put forth for this so people can sort of understand uh, where the, what, what the context is? So some of the common objections would be, number one, more junior colleagues in a company won't understand and value the ownership. And I would say there it really comes down to leadership. If, you know, if you've got a leadership team that really wants to operate this way, is willing to put the extra time and effort to communicate the business plan, is willing to operate in a transparent way, really get you know, folks engaged in the business and make sure people really do understand the equity value, the value of the equity that's been putting in their hands of what it could be worth and how they can themselves impact the outcome, then I think it does end up being very well understood and appreciated and it's it's well worth doing, but I, I do think it all comes down to leadership. You know, another common objection I hear is people would just prefer cash. So if you're going to provide extra compensation, just give cash to employees. And there, I, I would say from the employee's perspective, it's hard to build wealth just on a little bit of incremental wage. You know, equity is is really a path to building uh, wealth, and so it's difficult for employees to to really get ahead just on their labor alone. So that's not great. Also, on that same line of thinking, when people say, well, just let's do gain sharing or some cash bonus, then employees aren't participating in the multiplier effect of equity value growth, of earnings growth. And so that that's also not great from the employee perspective. And from the company perspective, 
you know, cash doesn't really align incentives, particularly if it's just a, you know, a, a wage increase uh, doesn't align incentives as much. It increases their fixed costs. It's not a variable expense like equity is. So I think there's some good reasons why equity should be a part of the program. It should not be at the expense of cash compensation. At lower levels of an organization, I, I don't believe there, and we, we never um, have employees invest out of pocket and risk capital. So it's a free benefit. Um, but I think it should be a part of, of the overall compensation program at all levels of an organization, not just the top. And when uh, you talk to people who maybe they're still on the fence, what what is your response? I don't think I mentioned back to the stories of my dad, the potential for stronger cultures, more aligned workforce. We have seen a lower propensity for people to leave an organization if they have ownership um, at all levels. Um, so lower uh, ranking colleagues who are given equity are less likely to quit. On a measured basis, their employee engagement scores tend to be higher. So I think I think we start from a place of this is the right thing to do. It's it's a company should feel an obligation to offer wealth creation opportunity for all colleagues. We think almost from a moral and ethical perspective, it's just not right for a, a leadership team to drive a company super hard for five years, really push uh, for performance, and at the end of it, you know, out of thousands of people, a handful of people generate real wealth, you know, we think that's just not right. So we start from a place of this is the right thing to do. And by the way, it also happens to be smart business. Well, let's talk about the engagement piece a little bit, because there's some really interesting pieces from your uh, research uh, about how the shared ownership can really sort of drive and uh, foster uh, strengthen engagement, including so Ingersoll Rand, uh, they were, they moved from 17% engagement to 77% engagement over six years. That's sort of one example. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, that connection? Why is that so dramatic? What is driving that massive sort of jump that that uh, jump into multiples there? Well, I, I would go back to leadership again. We've just got a great leadership team at Ingersoll Rand. The CEO, Vicente Reynal, is super passionate about employee ownership. It is has become over the years a core part of the company strategy to drive engagement and to share ownership and do all of the things that I briefly referenced earlier on. But it's the whole suite, I think, of efforts. You know, he's driven and his team have driven improvements in safety. The way they've communicated the business plan, the transparency with, with which that they communicate to people, bringing everyone along on the mission so that everyone knows what their role is, how they can contribute. I'll give you one example of, of something that we did at Ingersoll Rand, which was after we had made everyone an owner, we decided we were going to really focus on networking capital. Uh, so reducing inventories, uh, accelerating the collection of accounts receivable, et cetera. And we were going to do this with the whole organization, not just the leadership team. We were going to train thousands and thousands of people on what working capital is, how you can improve it, what the impact could be if we improve it. And uh, so we we set up a, a train the trainer approach. You know, we had some master trainers. They trained uh, some trainers beneath them who trained trainers beneath them. And the way the math works, pretty quickly you can you can target thousands and thousands of people without that many layers. And Everyone was trained on these concepts. They were analogized to things in their personal life, you know, inventory being like food in your refrigerator. You don't want to over purchase food. You're going to have food waste. You're going to have scrap. Your paycheck is like an accounts receivable. You want to get it in the bank as soon as you can and start earning interest. Um, it was a little more complicated than I'm, than I'm making it, but the team did a great job. And they 
did things like celebrating wins. Uh, if someone went out and collected accounts, old accounts receivable that we had written off, there was a gift for the employee that led it. There was a, a ceremony around it. And those were videotaped and translated into multiple languages and, and zapped around the world so all the colleagues could see it with the message of, what if we all did this? Um, what could we really accomplish together? So that type of behavior where you're, you're truly engaging colleagues in the business and engaging their brains and their creativity and giving them chances to go make a difference, that's the kind of stuff that moves the needle. So, you know, as you say, taking the engagement scores from whatever it was the 17th percentile to the 77th, I mean, that's, that's transformational. I mean, I think just uh, intuitively, you, if you've got employees like that who are less likely to leave their jobs, more engaged on the job, more financially secure because they're owners and there's been payments on the equity over time, you know, all that can, can really dramatically move the needle. When we talk about this engagement piece, you know, of course, it doesn't happen overnight. What needs to happen on the, the leadership side uh, for these efforts to, to really be successful? Uh, what else needs to happen for those folks so that they're, they're truly aligned? I think the, the leadership team, and I, I've kind of referenced this, they just need to really, I think, believe in this and want to do it because it is extra work. Uh, and so they need to see the value in it. They need to see the potential for what could happen in the organization if they have a more stable base of employees who are more engaged on the job. But once you've got that buy-in and that commitment and that belief, you know, these programs can really take off. Uh, and Vicente is not the only CEO that we've had, although he's exceptional. We've had others who have, you know, really grabbed the ball and run with it on this, this whole program. So we've got companies who have really, I think, cleverly experimented with ways of bringing an enhanced form of the worker's voice into the operation of the business. So take a manufacturing plant, um, delegating capital investment decision-making rights. So setting aside, as an example, a million dollars a year in the plant and saying to the, the colleagues in the plant, you know, we want you to decide how this gets invested. Uh, and so that, and, and by the way, we, we're not looking for like faster machinery. We're looking for how can we make this a better work environment? What are your ideas? Let's um, get them on the table. Let's study them and then vote on them. And whatever you vote on, we will do. So in that one facility I'm thinking about, the leadership team has put in a cafeteria with healthy food options. They built an on-site health clinic. Um, they built new break rooms. They air conditioned uh, the facility, which is one of the first things that the uh, employees wanted. So you know that kind of a thing really gets people to say, wow, I've got you know, I've got a voice in this. And, and and so I just think from a leadership perspective, it's that way of thinking that colleagues are whole beings who can be engaged on the job, who we need to take care of, and who have a critical role in taking care of the company and of our customers. That's kind sure. of the, that's the, the mindset of the leadership team that does this really well. And then there's also this element that needs to be built with the employees, this element of trust. How does that work? How can that be accomplished so that um, you can get to this point where people really are sort of uh, having that, that new engagement, that new teamwork that they could really, really flourish? How do you get to that trust element? That's a great question. Um, there's a lot of water under the bridge between hourly employees or, or more junior colleagues and the leadership of a company, like generations of water under the bridge. So Oftentimes people come to this without a lot of trust. And one of the questions we will get is, how do I get employees to trust that this ownership program's real, they're gonna value it? The challenge is the ownership program, you know, 
it's going to take years for it to pay off. So what we recommend is that people make commitments upfront unrelated to the equity. So you announce the ownership program, everyone's an owner, here's what it can mean for you. We're going to bring you along as a part of this journey. We are also going to, as an example, delegate some decision-making rights on what we're doing in our factories. We're going to do some financial coaching and financial literacy training. We're going to give people access, and there's some technology out there that can help you do this, access to your wages every day, not every other week. So not such a long pay cycle. We're going to set up an employee emergency assistance fund. Um, We're going to list out, these are things we're going to do. And then as you do what you say you're going to do, the trust gets built. And as you're building brick by brick, that trust back with the workforce, they are naturally going to value the equity more because they're going to believe you. I think getting trust in the equity program, which is not specifically what you asked about, but is what we often get asked about, I think can only be built in the context of a broader trust building exercise, if that makes sense. What you're building, could this have been built even 10 years ago? ESG is more accepted now. There's a mindset shift. But do you think that this could have been founded even a decade ago? Well, I I don't know, but I I do think this is a unique moment in time. It it feels like people have really had it with wealth inequality and um, relatedly with this large racial wealth gap. I do think COVID, which is a new phenomenon, obviously has shined a bright light on the unfairness of the economy. So if you were a more junior colleague, you were more likely to lose your job. Many times, if you didn't lose your job, you had to show up in person in close quarters and risk your health to keep your job. So I think we've got that, which we didn't have 10 years ago. Um, We've got, you know, whatever your political leanings, we've got a unified government that wants to do something about these issues. You've got the tragedy and murder of George Floyd, which is, there's definitely been a lot of things that have happened that I think make this easier today to make progress on. I do think it's easier today than 10 years ago. You're, you're a partner, you're co-head of private equity uh, for the Americas at KKR, uh, but then you're also founding this brand new organization from scratch and doing multiple roles then at once. Uh, what is that like? Well, it's um, it's a lot of fun. And I, and I would say most importantly, it's a team effort. Uh, as an example, my co-head of private equity, Nate Taylor, um, is very involved in this. My partner, Josh Weisenbeck, who worked with me in industrials for many years, all of our partners um, at the firm, um, a number of other private equity firms. I mentioned all the, the, the banks and all. There's just a lot of support around this, which, by the way, is what makes me optimistic that this is we're going to get real traction because there's just so many smart people around the table, um, smart and influential people around the table who want to see this happen. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd say it's been fun. It's been a collaboration. It's been a lot of people. Um, working on this and, and a real, real team effort. Um, but from the balance perspective of, y- y- you know, one of the fun things about this is it's so related to, to our day jobs. Obviously, for all of us, you know, we're always deploying management equity plans, and we are obviously working with all of these same uh, stakeholders in in our day jobs. So it's very synergistic. Knowing that you have multiple things that you are juggling, is there a particular trait that you have depended on as you have built this? Something that you're like, gosh, if I didn't have this quality, uh, this wouldn't be going in the direction it's going. Well, I think I'm very interested, naturally interested in the topic. So if I probably, if I, probably if I, this isn't a trait, but if I didn't have the upbringing that I had, I, I'm not sure I'd still be at this all these years later. So that consistent interest, you know, it just is is a nature of how, how I was raised and, and um, how I grew up. And then I would say uh, my, my co-head of private equity, Nate, keeps telling me I'm, I'm patient, which uh, in terms of, you know, 
working through this, talking people to people about it, talking people through it who want to try it. I've never heard that in my life that I'm patient before, but I'll take it. And then um, lastly, just maybe being flexible. You know, we're constantly learning and experimenting with the model. We made a lot of mistakes, so we keep changing it. Um, so that flexibility has probably also helped. Just to dig into the the patience bit, uh, I think a lot of people don't think about patience when they think about problem solving. And I always think that patience is a really interesting problem solving tool because um, uh, no two problems, even if they they seem like they're alike, they aren't. Like there's usually something a little bit different. And if you sit with it a little bit, you'll figure out the the right way to to tackle a particular problem. Anyway, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that patience is sort of an unsung problem solving tool? Probably, particularly for something like this, which is a system, you know, a a change of the system. I mean, my goodness, there's no way that's going to happen quickly. Yeah. So the the executive director who runs Ownership Works, Annalisa Miller, she talks about in the nonprofit world, there can be unrealistic expectations of change. And so I, I think, you know, we've been at this for 11 years. I think we've got some good momentum, but a long way to go. And I don't think we're sitting here being like, in two years, this is going to be fixed. You know, we're, this is... The goal is to try and make it more common, more natural to share ownership throughout an organization. As one of our peer organizations said at one point, um, normalizing ownership, that's going to take time. Um, So yeah, I think particularly with system change like this, it's patience is going to be important. And I think patience is also related to that flexibility piece because you're not trying to sort of ram forth one particular solution or approach or idea. You know, do you feel like there's a connection between flexibility and patience? Yeah, I think so. On the flexibility side related to this work specifically, not every company is going to be set up the same. The exact model probably is not going to be the same in terms of how you structure the equity, how much equity, you know, how much at which levels. How do you think about vesting and retention requirements and and the form of equity and, and when restricted stock versus options versus whatever? You know, we, we want, we're not going to be too prescriptive, too cookie cutter, too inflexible. And we just want to make forward progress each time we do it. So I, I think that that probably is slightly tied into patience. Uh, eventually, we'll probably get to a more crystallized view of exactly this is the way to do it within some broad contours, but we're not, we're not there yet. So ownership works is uh, helping companies deploy this broad based ownership model. Can you talk a little bit about how that will work? What we might see maybe in a few years, what will be sort of the before and the after that, that might, might be coming down the pike. How it works is usually the first conversation with a CEO or a private equity firm is just, how would I even start? How would I, you know, go from, We've got a company here where there's a handful of owners. How do you go from that to <clears throat> thousands of owners, maybe in, in multiple jurisdictions around the world? It starts with literally, we usually ask for just census data, like just send us by location, by salary band, um, number of employees, average income. And if you have any data on turnover and we'll start to play with numbers with you, play with structures, and we can figure out what could work uh, in terms of giving enough of an incentive to colleagues without taking up an an undue portion of the equity. There's that upfront structuring, then there's the communication. How do you communicate this to employees, both upfront and then over time, how do you keep them engaged and involved? There's the employee engagement and worker voice piece I mentioned. So, you know, we've got a big partnership with Gallup uh, who invented employee engagement and they've donated their survey tools, their research, their consulting help companies baseline employee engagement uh, and then measure progress over time and react to the feedback. It's like any good manager, you know, gets feedback 
tries to react to it, tries to be a better better manager, same for a company. So that's the employee engagement uh, part. And then the financial inclusion and resiliency, it's, it's all of those things I mentioned earlier around providing some financial coaching. So how people can save, plan, budget, the importance of getting out of credit card debt, how to apply for the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, et cetera. There's the financial education part of it. So some very basics on how equity value is created. So the folks who maybe don't have much of an interest in finance or much background can absorb and internalize the information that's shared. And then some of the other things I mentioned around accessing pay on a more frequent basis, et cetera. So it's really, it is kind of a soup to nuts. Help implement it, communicate it, drive engagement, you know, and measure all of these things all along the way. Is there a book that you recommend? Something you think, gosh, everybody should be should be reading and should be taking this to heart? I got a couple of ideas. None of these directly relate to employee ownership, but books that we've read at this nonprofit ownership works over the summer that I think are interesting. And, and we do find ways to tie them back to employee ownership. But one book is called The Great Risk Shift, and it really chronicles what happened to more junior colleagues in an organization over the past 50 years. So you you went from a situation where companies really took care of you cradle to grave. Uh, so it was like, you know, practically lifetime employment, gold-plated healthcare, defined benefit style pension plans. We went from that over the course of the last 50 years to the far other extreme. You know, at-will employment, no worker protections, lots of temp labor, bare bones healthcare plans with very high deductibles, a 401k program system where it's really all on you to plan for your retirement. So that's the concept of the great risk shift is it's kind of like put the risk on uh, the employee. And I think our feeling is somewhere back towards the middle in between the two extremes, you know, could be good for the country. And and I think ownership could be a part of that. Another book um, that I thought was really interesting is um, The Tyranny of Merit written by um, Harvard ethics professor. And the basic idea is that we've all convinced ourselves that whatever success we've found in life is because of our own hard work. It's all merit. His, His argument is that that's kind of bad all around because the winners, they feel like it's all them and there's no room for grace or gratitude. And for the less fortunate, it's bad for them because it yeah, they feel like it's all their fault and they just aren't aren't deserving of uh, financial or other rewards. And the reality, and he makes this point, I think, really well in the book, is that of no success is just one person. There's so many factors at play, not the least of which is luck, by the way, but it's who your parents are, where you grew up, what your schooling was like, what teachers you had. The way we tie that back to ownership is it's not all the CEO. It's not all any one person. It's not even all just the leadership team. Everyone who's found success has an obligation to share and give back because it's not all them. Regarding the the great risk, uh, if somebody read that book, what do you think is the thing that they'll come away with it? How will they be changed? It's just such a dramatic pendulum swing from, you know, they used to call it the corporate welfare state or the nanny state, all driven by the corporation. And it's just gone so far. And so that's what struck me is you're just like, holy cow, what a dramatic shift. You know, we've We've gone too far. Uh, a lot of the changes that we talk about on Meet the Leader, they're important changes, but they're also sort of things that are going to happen solely over the long term, much like some of the things that you're trying to put forth. Um, uh, that takes uh, sort of a different sort of commitment, a different sort of passion and drive. I- can you tell us you know, 
what is driving you? Why is this important to you personally that's going to sort of help you sort of uh, push forth uh, over the long term? Well, it's, you know, it's something I've been interested in my whole life, uh, starting as a little kid, as I mentioned, and have my dad explain to me the kind of the plight of a lower income colleague and that lack of alignment. Uh, so that, that that's honestly a, a big part of it. And then I would say the potential for impact is so enormous that it's very motivating. Here's a, a, a bull case on, on private equity as a model of governance, which is to say, if there's a change like this, that would be good for corporate America. Private equity offers some consolidated decision-making and an efficient and effective way of driving change in the sense that it doesn't take convincing many people to drive a big sweeping change. So there's a potential you know, domino effect where you, when you look at the number of employees that are related to the big private equity firms or to private equity in general, it's so significant and the decision-making is so consolidated that you could have, as I say, the dominoes fall on millions of people impacted. I mean, literally in not that much time. So that I think I find really exciting. What, what, what kind of change would you see in maybe the next 10 years? Well, the way we've talked about it is qualitatively, the goal is to just make this more common, more normal, more accepted. The quantitative goal we've set up is, you know, and I think we can do much better than this, but is 10 billion of wealth uh, creation for uh, lower income colleagues at, at companies who roll this model out. I think it could be many multiples of that if we really get the domino effect uh, going. And then over the next 10 years, we want to make this easier to do. So there are some things we're going to work on uh, in that respect to make this just easier to implement, easier to manage, easier to administer. And then I think there are some disclosures that would, you know, in 10 years, and I think it's that this part's going to happen sooner, but from a human capital management perspective, there's probably more that should be in the public domain about what's happening in the lower half of an organization. Right now, the disclosure is really around the named executive officers and you know the CEO and his or her direct reports. And I think some more disclosures, not just financial, but health and safety and wellness and worker training. And there's a whole worker turnover. There's a whole bunch of stuff that could be pretty easily disclosed that would give people a good sense for what's going on deeper into an organization. And I think we'll knock on wood, have a lot of that over the next 10 years. Given all the things we've talked about and all the things that you're working on, um, if you could leave the people who are listening to this podcast and this conversation with maybe one idea or one thought, what is that? What's the most important thing that they should be left with? Yeah, I think we all are tired of the win-win concept because there's always trade-offs, but I think this has the potential to be really good for workers. And also, if it's well executed, has the potential to be really good for companies as well. So I guess that's the big takeaway for me. And then the request would be whether you, uh, your listeners are, are corporates who might consider this, we'd love to hear from them, sure. uh, whether they're investors, pension plans, or public investors, uh, or public fund managers who think this could have merit, we'd love to hear from them. You know, we're, we're continuing to build this coalition of folks who think this has real merit and needs a serious, serious look we'd love to hear from those folks. That was Pete Stavros. Thanks so much to Pete for being this week's guest. And thanks to you for listening. 
Find a transcript of this week's episode, as well as transcripts from my colleagues' podcasts, Radio Davos, and the Book Club podcast at wef.ch podcasts. If you liked this week's episode, please let us know. Take a moment to rate and review. We would love to hear from you. This episode of Meet the Leader was produced and presented by me with studio production by Gareth Nolan. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.